0: Cordova, it is so good to be able to be with you today. Um, I hope that this sermon on this portion of Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, the offerings that come before the Lord in the temple is able to speak to the way that God is calling you forward um, and offering new and fresh parts of your life. Um, So without further ado, let's jump into it. Thank you, guys, everybody that contributes um, so much. I'm just always amazed at the fact that, um, I don't know, people show up and do stuff. <laughs> and it's great to be a part of a community that does that. Well, I I wonder, and maybe that's a little bit of an intro, um, you know, but do you ever, oh, there you are, Dave. I see you now. Okay, good. You are here. And help. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, Somewhat? Yeah. All right. We'll let Cody know. Pastor Cody deals with that. Have uh, <laughs> I mean, you ever wondered what your life confesses? Um, you know, it's something like volunteering at a church, obviously, has something to say about the things that are important that are important to you, that are important to God. What do you proclaim with your daily life? What do your actions say is most important? You know, And and I don't mean what do you think is most important or what in your heart do you hold most dear, but what do you actually, if somebody were going to look at you like a book and read your life like they read a book, what would they say matters most? Deuteronomy, remember we are, this is the last week, I believe, that we're going to be in um, Moses' big central sermon, chapters 12 to 26. Um, and it really is this, This attempt for Moses to re-evangelize, to kind of catechize the teaching and the proclamation, the good news of God saving his people, Israel, out of Egypt, he wants to get that into their bones, right? He wants to get that into the way that they automatically think and speak and respond and worship and love. And so they're standing here on the edge of this river, right? They're on the far side of the Jordan River. And they're looking over. You can, I don't know if literally or not, but you can just kind of imagine that they can look across that river and they can see the promised land that not only they've been hearing about for so long, but their, their ancestors have been hearing about for 400 years as they've been slaves in Egypt. That's a long time to be telling stories about the promised land. And here they are on the edge of it. This is how Moses wraps this up when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, this is 1 to 4, and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket. You shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. You shall go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare today that the Lord your God... uh, I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. We don't know a whole lot about, we know some, we don't know a ton about what it was like, the Canaanites, the people that the Israelites were going in to live among, what their lives were like. But we do know that one of the big threats as they're standing on the edge of this river is As we cross this river and as we come into Canaan and as we live in their cities and, you know, take over their fields and all of the stuff God's going to give us this land, we're going to drink from their wells, all of these sorts of things. Are we, the, the threat is always, are we going to become like them? Are we, the Israelites, the people of God, are we going to become like the Canaanites? And one of the real challenges was that their cultures were not that far off. They were pretty close to each other. And the way that tithing worked for Canaanites, as far as we can tell, it's a little fuzzy, but what we think happened is that you would have a king who was kind of, and it's not like the king of a big country or you know, the king of an empire, but it's like the king of one city. right? And they're the king over one city, and they've got kind of a wall around the city, but then there's all these villages outside of the city that feed into it You know that when they harvest and all that kind of stuff. It comes into that city. And so the king would say, we are here now to kind of receive these tithes. And they would take tithes, except they didn't take tithes from each individual person. They would take a tithe from the whole village. Okay, so your village would be responsible for, I don't know, 20 bushels of wheat or whatever it is. And those 20 bushels are going to go to the king. And then the king would take those 20 bushels and all the 20 bushels from all of the villages. And he would distribute them to the priests of the temple in the, of the god that you worship. So maybe it's Dagon or Baal or, or Molech or whatever. Does that kind of sort of make sense here? Right. So you as a village give to the king. And then the king decides... How much to give to the priests and to the temple? Right? Do you see how that might be different than what the Israelites are doing? Who do they tithe to, the Canaanites? They tithe to the king. And then the king gives to the priests. Who do the Israelites tithe to? They tithe directly to God. Right? They go straight into the temple or the tabernacle or the synagogue or wherever it is It says that God says for them to give. And they take that offering directly to the priest. And they make their confession and the priest takes it and then the priest distributes it according to the needs of the temple. But in the Canaanite system, you don't have a direct relationship with your God. In the Canaanite system, the king is the one who stands in between you and God. The king is the one who, kind of, does that back and forth, and the, the Israelites might be tempted as they go into the Promised Land. Here they are; they're not really a full nation yet, right? They're really like this federation of tribes. You know, they've got uh, who is it? Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and all of all of the twelve tribes: Judah, Benjamin. But those 12 tribes are really more connected to each other than they are to the whole nation. It's like, it's like seeing my identity more as a, as a Californian than I am an American. right? I'm more connected to my kind of local reality than I am to the whole big corporate reality. And so when they get into the land, the temptation is to say, well, I'm not an Israelite, I'm a Danite, or I'm a Gadite, or I'm whatever my tribe or clan or family is. And as I sort of mark myself there, maybe I'm an ambitious person who wants to see a lot of good things happen in my life, and so I say, man, these people really aren't ruling very well, whoever's over me. There's no one king over all of Israel. That doesn't happen for a long time. So here I am, I move into some Canaanite city with big walls around it, and why don't I just take tithes the way that the Canaanites did? You might look at that and you go, well, the Israelites are just being relevant They're just doing what the people in their day wanted to do, what everybody was used to. And pretty soon, you don't have the people of Israel, and you don't even have (coughs) the nation of Israel. But you've got a whole bunch of little kings who are trying to run their own kingdoms. And as they try to run their own kingdoms, guess what? They're also setting up their own temples. They're setting up their own gods. They're setting up their own forms of worship. There's this temptation to imitate, to be like the nations. But what we know is that God wanted something unique. He wanted something different than had ever happened before. God wanted to be Israel's king. He didn't want to appoint a king, He wanted to be their king. Which meant that when you brought your tithe, which in our frame of thinking is the same as bringing your tax, right? When you brought your tithe, into the temple you brought it to your king even as you brought it to the priests you brought in that basket and you laid down those first fruits and you said of all that god has given us here is kind of a tenth or a portion or a reminder that every good thing that i have ultimately comes from god god wanted that direct relationship But the thing is, I I don't know if you've noticed this in your own spiritual life, but often we don't want a direct relationship with God. We want a mediated relationship. We want somebody to stand in between us and God. We want a pastor or a leader or a teacher or an author to kind of stand in there and and chew up what God has for us and then baby bird it into our mouths. To take that information that is, like, difficult for us to handle and difficult for us to swallow and difficult for us to deal with because it causes us, it forces us to live lives of deeper holiness. It forces us to live lives of repentance. And so we would rather have, oftentimes, an indirect relationship with God than a direct one. We're exactly like the Israelites in that way. God says, I want you to bring me this offering. Bring it into the altar. Lay it down before the priests. But there's another difference. Not only is Yahweh the king rather than the Canaanite king, but no one helps you get out of your responsibility in the Israelite system. Right? Tithes are not taken according to village. They're taken according to person or household. If you want to see a picture of this, I'd encourage you go read the first couple chapters of Samuel. Um, Samuel's mother, Hannah, is this wonderful picture of what tithing ought to have looked like in in Israelite world, even before uh, even when everything was pretty messed up. She still does it really well. She does it really beautifully. But Yahweh is, the king, and not only that, you can't kind of disappear into your village so that it's like, well, my village is going to give 20 bushels of wheat, so really, I probably ought to give two bushels, but I'm going to see if I can make it with only giving one and a half, right? And at the end of the day, the guy who has the most, he's ultimately going to give five bushels, but you see what I'm saying? When we operate solely in groups, we often try to give our responsibility over to somebody else. Rather than saying, I know this is what I should be doing. I know this is how I should be participating. But somebody else is energetic and loud, and they don't mind standing up front, so I'll just let them do it all the time. right? Somebody else is willing, so they seem to be having a good time, so I'm just going to let them do it. Rather than stepping up and doing it myself, knowing that it would be good for me to step up and do it myself. Right? Rather than knowing that God has actually called me into that kind of participation. We allowed somebody else to do it for us. God calls them into this intensely personal relationship that you are responsible for your relationship with this personal God who loves and saves you. And as Cody reminded us a month or so ago, this 10th that we give, this tithe, this one 10%, whatever, it's, it's a symbol. It's a way of saying that everything that I have is really yours just like when i gave my wife a wedding ring on our wedding day which was also her engagement ring but you know we, i just gave it to her again uh, <laughs> that was her idea uh, <laughs> it's a way of saying it's not it's not that this one piece of gold and this diamond is somehow more special or precious and that's all you get of me right but it's it's a way of saying here is this thing that marks me out as yours that marks all of me out as yours. So even though it's maybe a tenth of my salary, I don't know if it was a tenth of my salary or not, but even though it's only a small portion of my salary, it's a way of giving her all of who I am, right? The same thing with the offering. And so when we bring this offering to this king who asks this directly from us, who asks this personally from us, we also bring a personal confession. So listen to verses 5 to 9. He says, and you shall make response before the Lord your God, A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great Deeds of terror with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, because the offering that Israel brings is not just about the tenth, it's not just about the offering, it's not just about keeping the economics of the temple going, although that's important. The Israelites who confess the same, what do they say? My father was a wandering Aramean. Now, what do we mean, who's this Aramean? We might look back and say Abraham, and it might be Abraham, but the, the more likely possibility is that this wandering Aramean is Jacob, who also takes the name of Israel later in his life. Jacob, very famously in Genesis 28, goes down to Paddan Aram. He has uh, cheated his brother out of his birthright, and his brother Esau is on his tail, hot, angry ready to kill him, right? And he knows, because it's his twin, he knows that he can beat him. Jacob's not the fighter, Esau is. So Esau is chasing Jacob. He makes it to Paddan Aram. And we think that that's probably where this comes from, that the word wandering, right? Jacob is the wanderer, but it can also be read perishing or in trouble. And so the idea here is that all of Israel is connecting themselves to Israel, to Jacob, to this one who fled from death. And in fleeing from death, God gave him new life. He becomes the father of those 12 tribes. As Israel comes into this place, as they bring their offering, they also confess where they come from. You know, it's what we do weekly. When we gather around the table, and we, use, we say those words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. What are we doing when we say those words? We are confessing the very source of our life. That as Cody prayed today, the worst thing that could happen has already happened. And if the worst thing that can happen has already happened, and God has already turned that into resurrection life, then how can we therefore live our lives? We can live it in this power, in this confidence, that God is working those good things in us as well. And so we finish saying, and Christ will come again, because we live forward into that hope of Christ's glorious return. And then after that, where is it that we go? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We pray this prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Just like they would say, bringing their offerings, my Father was a wandering Aramean, we say, our Father who art in heaven. That our Father is no longer Jacob with all the messiness and the brokenness of his life, but now, through Christ, we have been connected to the true Father. Through Christ, we have been connected to the good Father who gives all good things. (coughs) Sometimes even viruses, somehow. (laughs) Somehow they're good. I don't know. They're in creation. (laughs) But in the same way, Paul instructs his church in Rome, jumping ahead here. Did you hear it in Romans 12? That's what Bob read. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is Your spiritual worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect you see Paul sees this moving in another direction where now Israel or now the church God's people are no longer just bringing an offering now they are the offering that bringing their very bodies to God as worship is their spiritual worship, he says. They are the living sacrifice, the living offering. They are the body of Christ to the world. And we all know what happened to Christ's body. Christ's body was given, not only in sacrifice to forgive our sins, but it was given to care and to heal and to restore. I often run across reminders of all that this church has done in the past you know i've only been here i guess january i'll be three years um but this church has been around a lot longer than that a lot longer than any of us even i don't think anybody here i I don't think there's any like super founding donna you're probably close to it um been here since the 60s (laughs) right but this church used to have a ministry called brown bag um food would come in Volunteers would gather, that food was sorted and put together into those bags, and then seniors especially who were in need were able to come to the church and receive uh, food that was sustaining for a lot of them. I mean, they needed it in order to, be, to make it financially. And I was thinking about that ministry, I was reminded of it this week, I was thinking about it, and one of the things that's so striking about that ministry, which, you know, it ended before I ever got here, and I don't think anyone here wanted it to end, there were other things that caused it, come to a close, um, but that it wasn't just about the food, right? That if you really knew and understood brown bag, you knew that it wasn't just about the food that was put into the bag and handed over. It's like Jeff Herzig used to say, the ministry with seniors was about the fellowship and the care that you were able to offer them. It wasn't just simply the physical gift. As each volunteer became the offering. They became the gift, whether by working behind the scenes and sorting out food or in being the voice and the hand that actually handed it over to somebody in need. They became that living sacrifice, that living offering, that gift of Christ's presence to somebody who is in need. You see, every act that we carry out is about confessing our origin story. It's about confessing who we are and where we come from, that we find our life in the source of all life. And the source of all life who saved this group of wandering Arameans also gives himself up for us to save us and to give us life. Verses 10 to 11. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord... This is still the words coming out of the Israelites' mouths as they bring their offering. Which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. We are to proclaim in our lives that we are not our own. Um, (laughs) We are, we don't belong to ourselves, right? Right? In high school, we had to do these, I don't know if you guys ever did these family tree projects. We had to do one in history, like my freshman or sophomore year, I can't remember. And we have to go back and find, you know, find out where we came from, what their names were, all this stuff. And all of us were doing this in the hopes that somehow we were like royalty, right? They were going to find like King Edward the 42nd or something is like, they are the reason that we are here. <laughs> and we go searching back through our past. And if not royalty, it'd be good to have like a good villain or two in there, right? Like maybe Billy the Kid is my great-great-grandfather or something. We want to be related to someone famous. We want to have a hidden fortune waiting for us or something like that. So we go and we do these projects in the hopes that there's somehow this thing back there in our past that's going to make our lives more significant than we feel like it is now in the present. But what is the confession of Israel? Their confession is that their personal and family story is that they were a group of wanderers who did not come from anywhere good. Do you see that? That they don't have any past on their own, but that the only past that they have and therefore the only future that they have is the past and the future that God gives to them. Because they were a group of wandering Arameans who were brought down into Egypt and put into slavery and who were overwhelmed and controlled and possessed by the Pharaoh. But what they found out is that even when they were possessed by the Pharaoh, they were not really possessed by the Pharaoh. Truly, God is the one who possessed them. And so there was a time and there was a day when God took them and raised them up and did not allow the Pharaoh to have and hold their lives anymore, but instead he brought them out into a new day. And into a new way you shall set it before the Lord your God and you shall worship before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you you see what else happens when we bring those offerings before Christ or well, before the Lord they don't just stay with us and they don't just stay in the temple They don't just stay with the priests, but those offerings actually then begin to spill out. It's like a cup full of blessing that just gets sloshed and pushed around and because the glory of God is so full and it's so rich and you can't keep it all in the cup so that it just keeps overflowing and it keeps overflowing to all the people around us who don't even deserve it so that it's not only people who own the fields that are receiving this blessing, but it's the Levite who has no real job. They're like me, pastors. Right? They don't have a real job, but, but the blessing of God flows out to them anyway. It's like the fatherless and the widow who have no earthly right to an inheritance, but the blessing of God flows out to them anyway. It's the sojourner who doesn't belong in this land, but has come here out of desperation because of something that has happened in their homeland, and the blessing of God flows out to them anyway. Me and my house, yes, praise God, but also those who are dependent on us, also those who have no right to receive goodness from us, also those who have no right to be here in the first place. God, The goodness of God overflows to them as well. Praise God, praise God, praise God. And you know what? Women who are doing Romans on, on uh, Tuesday mornings, if you're in the women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, I'm certain when you get... To chapters 9 to 11 I want you to pay attention to what Paul says in those verses where he says God has we know that God has chosen this people the Jews but somehow in some way oh, the depths and the riches and the mysteries and the wonder and the glory of God that through Jesus Christ he has taken that one choice that small family the Jews and he has poured out that blessing into all people and all nations and all places And we don't know how, and we can't even exactly put our finger on it, but we know that it happens in Christ. And so then, knowing that, listen to 12 through 15. We'll wrap up here. When you finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year. So these are two kind of separate things. The first offering is this offering of first fruits, right? It's like whenever you harvest, you bring that first chunk, you go to the temple, that's the first thing you do before you take it for yourself, Okay. This is a, a kind of every third year sort of offering, okay? And, it, and, and this offering is going to culminate in a big townwide wide feast. Um, it's going to turn into this, everybody in the village gets to party, okay? So when you finish paying all the tithe of your produce, in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be fulfilled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it, while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. Bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. We don't know exactly what all of those things were, but essentially the the person making this offering in every third year, they are promising that they've dealt rightly with it, right? Um, That they've done everything that God would have them to do. So that all those who are in a dependent situation here are also going to be pulled into this overflowing goodness of God. So just to kind of sum up, the offering of the harvest leads to personal, direct worship and praise before the Lord. It leads to this personal confession and submission to the real king. And the next step then is to extend this triannual, every three years kind of party table of fellowship to all those who would otherwise be deprived. As I think about that, and I think about what all that means... I can't get the words of paul out of my head i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercy of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship he says don't be conformed to the ways of the world don't be conformed to the ways of the canaanite kings don't be conformed to the habits and the practices of the families around you don't be conformed to the politics of the people around you. Don't be conformed to the ways of those who have no idea about Christ and his goodness, even though it seems almost impossible to not be conformed. Because we forget, really and truly, we forget that sin is not fun. Sin is hard labor. Sin is slavery in Egypt and i know that there's like a there's kind of a buzz that comes with it sometimes and that there's like fun sins and sad sins right i get that but the truth is is that when we sin we are becoming less than we really are and so even when there is that kind of zip in the moment it's not your true self and ultimately it hollows you out and it makes you less than who you really are. And as you become more and more hollowed out, you become more and more a shell of yourself until before long, you're just playing a game. No, your true self is one who has been created and loved and cared for and given to you and to the world by God. Your true self is made for communion with God. And it's made for fellowship with others who are also in communion with God. And so anytime we offer God and others less than that, we are lessened, we are diminished. On the other hand, I know that faithfulness to God often does not seem so fun. I'm aware of the irony that we worship a God who says, come and know life in me and finished his own earthly life on an instrument of Roman torture and death, the cross. I'm aware of that. But we also ought to know that that good news leads us truly into the promised land. That the way of the world is a life that leads only to death, while the way of Christ may feel like death, but it ultimately leads to life. And so here's Paul's advice in the verses just following what Bob read Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. And so as the Israelites are confessing that their father is a wandering Aramean, that they belong to this people of wandering, and that their settled life in the land is only a result of God's persistent goodness to them, what do you say? Can you say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, knowing that all good things come from him? And if you can say that, what is the next small step that you can take? What's the next thing that you can do to deepen the communion of God in your life? Can you pray five more minutes this week? Can you extend yourself a little bit for your neighbor? Can you love the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow just a little bit more this week than you did last? Can you learn to confess that all truly good things come from God and that the kings of this world who collect your taxes are only kings? and not the true king. There is nothing ultimate or final about them. They serve at the pleasure of the Almighty, and he can take them out at any time if he so desires. If those don't do do it for you, pick one thing from Paul's list, and just do that a little bit better this week than you did last. And slowly, what you begin to come to know is that Christ will inhabit your life in a way that you cannot now name or recognize. I pray that all of us who confess with the sacrificial nature of our lives, a God who loves us and gives himself for us, a God who's not intimidated by the threats of death that surround us all the time, instead let us offer ourselves and our church boldly, knowing that as we do so, we place ourselves in the hands of the loving God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love, for your work, for your mercy in our lives. May we be a people who are devoted and submitted to you in all things we pray.